This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. I've talked about this before. It's there's a really irritating phenomenon that I think affects everybody, but it affects me in spades. When I can't remember the name of a motion picture, it kills me. I have to go and figure it out. Uh, for instance, the, there's one the, certain films I'll never remember the name to. Uh, there's a uh, there's an, a, a Jay Leno Pat Narita movie that nobody ever remembers the name to. I think it's something like Collision Course, but I never remember the name to that that film. But you, it's it's such a pain when you just can't remember the name of a film or a song or a book. What's the book with the with the so and so that marries so and so? And you can't give that sort of a description. Well, who's the author? Oh, I don't remember. Well, you know. So anyway. This Friday, I am at a crossroads in terms of my date night with my wife. Do we go to this Eisenhower show or do we go to the movies and see Oppenheimer or Indiana Jones or something? So I remember someone that I had in studio told me that they had seen this Eisenhower show. And at first, I thought it was Richard Bay. I reached out to Richard Bay. Hey, Richard, was it you who told me that you saw this show about Eisenhower? He said, nope, wasn't me. And then I was sure I remembered who it was. I said, it's got to be Elliot Gordon. Elliot Gordon's been in studio a few times. We'll chat a few minutes during the break. I uh, I said, uh, Elliot, you know, um, let me know what you thought of this Eisenhower show. And by the way, why don't you come back again and we'll schedule something. He said, sure, I'd love to come back, but no, that wasn't me. I didn't see that Eisenhower show. I said, all right, I mean, I guess it'll still be nice to have you on the radio. But uh, I still don't know who it was that told me they saw that Eisenhower show. If anybody remembers, because they, if we talked about it on the air, let me know. But in any event, I am thrilled, whether he's seen that Eisenhower show or not, to welcome back Elliot Gordon, he is an entrepreneur, a former age of Mayor Giuliani, a producer and a talent agent, and he has um, conceptualized this really innovative blending of storytelling and curating clips, uh, allowing a stroll down memory lane that has audiences of all ages laughing and smiling. And uh, whenever he's on the show with me, there's such an overwhelming positive response all over the country that I'm eager to have him back as uh, as often as possible. Elliot, it's great to see you in studio again. Thanks for coming Frank, in. Frank, it is great to be here. And anytime I'm on the Frank Morano show, for the next four days, people stop me on the street. We heard you. We heard you. I said, well, you want to hear me? You can call me at home. There's no, you sound better with Frank. <laughs> so I'm back here. I'm thrilled to be back here. It's always great. I, I'm uh, I'm thrilled to have you. For folks that have not heard our, our previous discussions, because we're picking up, thankfully, new new markets all over the all over the country all the time. Give us the Reader's Digest version of exactly what it is that you do regularly for these live shows. Sure. Frank, for a long time, maybe 20, 25 years, I had been a talent agent, which is great because you're representing artists and you're going out, you're getting them work, you're picking up commissions, 
And I was working a lot with the older guys because they were easier, more accessible. So I was getting jobs for guys like uh, Robert Klein and our buddy Pat Cooper and Catskills on Broadway and Jackie Mason and one after another. And my name got around and Alan King and they say, hey, this guy delivers. And I was picking up nice commissions, but I didn't realize more valuable than the commissions is I was picking up stories. We would go to lunch together, dinner together, and they would share stories with me about their background, how they came up, in many cases, the Catskill Mountains. But not only the Catskill Mountains, my mentor, my friend forever, was a man named Sid Bernstein, and he became one of the big music promoters Mm. of the 1960s and 70s. And Sid and I developed a friendship and a relationship that lasted, well, over 30 years. And I lost him about five years ago at the age of 95 But Sid, speaking yesterday was August 15th, and 58 years ago, Sid made history with the first concert in a major league ballpark in history when he brought four kids named the Beatles into Shea Stadium and changed the music industry. (laughs) And uh, I said, Sid, I said, you know, how did that come about? Uh, Because that's history. He said, "El, well, in 1962, I lost all my money promoting shows in New Jersey. I went bust, a couple of bad shows, needed money, got a job with an agency called GAC, General Artists Corporation. And he said, uh, I went to work with them. It was a little bit boring because a promoter is the action. You're gambling. You're hustling. But an agent, you're just making calls to get jobs for the clients. He said, it wasn't that stimulating, even though it was a check. So he went to the new school because there was a guy, Max Lerner, who he loved as a columnist from the New York Post, and he was teaching a course there about foreign governments. So he said, I want to stimulate my mind. At night, I went to the new school, and the guy said, well, pick which country you want because foreign governments, and you bring back information, and I'll teach you. And he said, I I took Great Britain because it was English. I could go to uh, the newsstand in Times Square, which was called Hoddlings, that got newspapers from all over the world. They're still there now as a store. And he said, I'd pick up papers from Great Britain to do my homework assignment. But being an agent, I had to turn to the entertainment page. It's who I am. And he said, "El, I caught one line. It said, music note. Four lads from Liverpool causing a stir. It just caught my eye. Caught my eye. He said, it just got me. And he said, a few days later, it was two lines. And then a week later, a paragraph. And then half a paragraph and a couple of pictures. And he said, I didn't realize it, but through the newspapers I was getting in Times Square, I was witnessing the birth of the Beatles. And that's how they were starting to grow. And he said, I just kept following it in the papers And as a promoter, I'm seeing kids in pictures lining down the block. That's ticket buyers. That's what I need. That's how I make a living. He said, I figure ticket buyers in England, ticket by kids in New York. It's the same thing, the same language. He said, so I brought it to my boss, Buddy Howe, uh, who was the head of GAC. And I said, Buddy, there's something going on in Liverpool that we should stop paying attention to. They're getting a lot of coverage in the newspaper. And photographers follow crowds. If you got crowds, the press will be there. These guys got crowds. That's why they're getting coverage. So he said, Buddy says to me, well, we got an office in London. 
and we'll send an agent up to Liverpool, which is like a two-and-a-half-hour drive. So give it a couple of weeks. We'll send one of our guys to check these guys out, Sid. And about three weeks go by, and he said, Buddy walks into my office and hands me a memo that uh, one of our agents went to see him at the cavern, and the memo says, good band, but not right for American audiences. Really? Yeah. And he says to Sid, uh, we're going to pass on your band. And Sid said, L, I know Buddy's wrong. I'm a promoter. There are lines there. There's something that's not right. He said, I know what I'm looking at. So he said, I'm figuring maybe I could break away and bring them in myself. It's against agency rules for an agent to promote. So I got to do it under the radar. And he said, I don't even know how to get in touch with them. You can't Google Beatle Manager right. in 1962. Uh, so he said, "L, I'm in a quandary. He said, Sid loved his um, ice cream and pizza and French fries. He was what I called a uh, a regular foodie gourmet, and he loved that stuff. So he said, I'm at a place called Stouffer's restaurant chain, and I'm at the counter having ice cream, trying to figure out this dilemma. How do I find this group's manager? And he said, an agent I, walk, I knew walked in named Bud Seligwell. And he said, Sid, what's happening? And he said, Bud, he said, I'm hot on a British band. They call themselves the Beatles. I don't know how to get in touch with their manager. And he said, El, there's something called Besheret, which is a Hebrew word. It's meant to be. Bud says to Sid, Sid, I just got back from London. I've been working for a guy named Brian Epstein. He hired me. He's the manager of the Beatles. They got a record deal by EMI, which is the parent company of Capital, and he hired me to come to London, go to the disc jockeys, go to the radio people, try to get some some airplay. He said, but it's a very small thing. He said they got a following in Liverpool. Brian Epstein is a one-man show. He handles everything, the press, the bookings, the managing. You're building this up in your head. It's a small local issue. He said, I just got back. And Sid tells Bud, but I feel it in my bones. There's something going on in those pictures that I like. Mm. Give me Brian's number. And he just hands him in the number, circle six, something or other. And he said, El, he said, I called the number. Brian lived at his home in London, at his mother's home, Queenie Epstein. He said his mother answers the phone, and uh, we have a nice conversation. She said, Sid, where are you calling from? He said, well, I'm calling from New York. She said, Sid, my favorite thing to read every week, my favorite thing is the Sunday book review of the New York Times. And we get it here in London, and they're always saying, we promise we'll save you a copy. And half the times they don't. So he said, Al, I made a deal with Brian's mother, which I kept for 30 years. Every Sunday I will air mail you the <laughs> book review from the Times. Give me your son. Put your son on the phone. And she's and he did it for 30 years, and she said, Mr. Bernstein, this is obviously costing you a lot of money, this phone call. Brian's upstairs. I'll get my son. He said, Brian comes to the phone and said, you are the first person to call me from New York, from America. He said, nobody returns my calls. The agencies won't call me back. We can't get anything released by Capital in America. None of the promoters, he said, Mr. Bernstein, what's wrong with you people? My boys are playing their book to play the best music halls in England. We got bookings for Germany and France. What is your problem in America? 
And Sid tells me, I tell Brian, I've been following you guys through the newspapers that I've been picking up in Times Square. I know you're on target. I would like to make an offer to be the first one to bring your guys to America, to New York. And he said, Brian says, well, where would you present them? And Sid said, I didn't think of that. I I got so excited with everything, I forgot where to say. And he said, I just blurted out, uh, Carnegie Hall. And Brian said, that's it. He said, Carnegie Hall is class. It's famous all over the world. If my boys come to New York, and he never called them the Beatles. It was always my boys. My boys come to New York. I want them in Carnegie Hall. And Sid said, well, how much money are you getting? He said, well, we're getting the equivalent of dollars to pounds, uh, 2000 a night now here in uh, England. And we got the same deal going to uh, Germany and France, 2000 a show. And Sid said, Al, I just threw it out there. He said, I was shooting dice. He said, I'd like to take your boys for two shows in one night for 6500 which has become legend in entertainment wow. business. And Brian said, well, I can't turn that down. He said, wait till I tell the guys at Issau's. Sid didn't know what Issau's was. It was a hot theater restaurant that they all hung out at. He said, okay. He said, we'll make a deal. And uh, Sid said, I'd like to bring him in in 90 days. And Brian said, no, let's make it for a year from now, 64. And I won't let them come to New York unless we got a hit record, meaning top 40. Paul McCartney always tells the story that he says, we told Brian a number one, but you can't make that deal. Brian told Sid, a top 40, we need a record out because I won't bring them to New York if they don't got in right. the airplane. So Sid says, Al, I make the deal. By the way, there was never a contract. This was all done over the phone. It was all verbal, like they were farmers out in Wisconsin or something. And he said, I make a deal. Uh, and uh, he said, now I go down to uh, Carnegie Hall, and I want to hold the date because the deal I made was February 12th, 1964, because then we celebrated Lincoln's birthday on Lincoln's birthday. There was no Monday holiday. No figure, yeah. So he said, I needed a day when the kids were off. So it's February 12th. So he said, I go to Carnegie Hall, and uh, I said, I want to take that date for uh, for the Beatles. And they never heard of the Beatles. They said, well, Mr. Bernstein, uh, you know, we have a no rock and roll policy at Carnegie Hall. He said, what are the Beatles? And he said, they're a British quartet. <laughs> <laughs> He hits the, he throws down a deposit, and uh, he said, "L." He said, um, "You know, as time are going by, they're they're getting their records released in New York, and uh, before you know it, by the time I put tickets on sale, which was uh, January first of '64, he said everybody knew him. He said the, the the it became historic, and it became really a tremendous success. And his relationship with Brian Epstein cemented." So now Sid becomes a big guy. He has a friend of his named Walter Hyman said, Sid, leave the agency. I'll come up with the money. We've got another guy who is your buddy from 47th Street, Abe Margulies. He'll come up with money. Full-time promote. You don't have to work for the agency anymore. Everybody in the country has been writing about Sid Bernstein found the Beatles. He brought them to America. He presented them at Carnegie. You're a big man. So Sid said, I love promotion. I'll do it. Leaves the agency on good terms. And he said, we get a nice office. I think it was 505 Park Avenue. Uh, he said, oh, I go to my uh, desk. The phone rings. And I get a call from a guy whose name you just can't forget, Andrew Lug Oldham. Yeah. How do you forget a name like that? It. 
And uh, he said, Mr. Bernstein, he said, I got a group out here. I got a band. He said, we're working the bars in London, working some of the joints out there. We got a record out. And my guys keep telling me we want to work in New York. The Beatles went with Sid Bernstein. Call Sid Bernstein. Let him bring us to New York because we want to work out there. So Sid says, well, uh, do your, does your band have a name? He said, uh, yeah, they call themselves the Rolling Stones. <laughs> and now Sid's bringing in the Rolling Stones. And he brings them into Carnegie Hall, like with the Beatles. And all those British bands now have their managers call Sid Bernstein because of the Beatles. So he said, I'm bringing in the Dave Clark Five, the Herman's Hermits, the Moody Blues, the Kinks, the Animals. They called me. He said, El, but the problem I ran into was the Beatles show sold out, Rolling Stones sold out. And I said, gee, if I had more than two Beatles shows or two shows by the Stones, I would have cleaned up. I should have bought more shows. So for these bands, I'm buying five and six shows, but they couldn't do the business. They weren't the Stones and the Beatles. And Sid went broke. And I said, Sid, I see Sid Ellie said, I lost all my money. My backers pulled out because after the Stones and the Beatles, all were losers. And he said, I became very famous. But I'm busted. Fame without the fortune. Right. I've heard that's the worst thing. Right. So he said, uh, my wife is on my case. I can't handle this business. You're up, you're down, you're in, you're out. He said, I can't do it. We've got a child. We've got another one on the way. Sid wound up having six beautiful kids. Uh, get a job. Uh, he said, I'm getting eviction notices from the apartment, from the landlord. So they owe money to the grocer, to the butcher, to the dry cleaner. He said, I am tapped out. And I didn't want to quit. I said, L, I know my wife kept pushing me, but I said, no, uh, I'm going to figure out how to get back on my feet. I said, well, Sid, what'd you do? He said, well, I thought back to Carnegie Hall. Carnegie Hall holds 2,800 people. We sold out two shows as 5,600 tickets. But I asked Nat Potasnik, who ran the box office at Carnegie Hall, Nat, how many tickets could I have sold? For the Beatles shows if I had them. And he said, El, Nat told me by the way the phones were ringing, uh, about 200,000. Wow. And he said, El, at that point, it just rang to me that I've got to bring the Beatles back and I've got to bring them in the biggest room New York City has, uh, which at that time was Yankee. He said, but Yankee was in a bad era, area. Uh, Shea was just built. Shea Stadium. Shea Stadium. He said the idea of a new stadium, the paint glistens, the chrome on the escalators shine. He said a new venue. Wouldn't that be great? And he said, El, he said, I was going to do it in the stadium. So um, I'd be the first one to ever do that. Uh, he said, I called Shea and I spoke to a guy, Jim Thompson, who ran the stadium. Uh, I said, he said, what price? What can I get Shea for? He said he didn't even have a price because it's never been right. done sure. before. So they came up with a price of 25000 So he said, put a hold. The best date for Shea, the Mets would be away, was August 15th. He said, put a hold. And Sid's famous. They think he's got all kinds of money. <laughs> Sid Bernstein called. We'll put a hold on the stadium. He couldn't pay the rent in the apartment. Now he's renting a stadium. So he said, oh, then at that point, I've got, I've got the big call to Brian Epstein. He said, I called Brian, and I say, Brian, I want to bring you guys back to New York in the summer of 65. Brian said, perfect. We're planning a tour of North America. 
We could fly from Heathrow Airport into Kennedy. We could open up in New York and sit, as far as I'm concerned, you own the Beatles for New York. You're our man there. Uh, so he said, you want to bring him back to Carnegie? Uh, Sid said, no. He said, uh, well, where do you want to bring him? And he said, uh, Shea Stadium. And Brian turned him down right away. He said, Sid, we're playing places that hold about 5,000 people. And my policy with the Beatles is no empty seats. We sell out wherever we go. That's our deal. I'm not interested in going into a stadium, selling 20,000 tickets, which is a lot, and at that point having half the stadium empty. He said, you'll kill their career. I'm going to turn you down. And Sid said, "Well, I just got tough with Brian. He said, I'm not that kind of guy, but I just, I see. He said, Brian, I will guarantee you in writing $10 a ticket for every empty seat in the stadium. Wow. Sid didn't have money for chewing gum. But he, that, he said, Al, I went with it. And he said, Brian got quiet. And he said, you know, you sound very cocky, very confident. He said, you must know something about what's happening in the New York market. I'm in London. You live in New York. And he said, Sid, I'm starting to believe that with this band, uh, maybe anything's possible. He said, I never thought I'd do it. But I'm going to okay Shea Stadium. He said, you got me. Uh, and Sid said, what's the price? He said, well, I can't give them to you what I gave them to you for last year, which was two shows for 6500 We've got movies out there, A Hard Day's right. Night. We've got help going into the movie theater. We've got hit records. He said, Sid, I need a $100,000 guarantee against the back-end deal of a percentage. Uh, and Sid said, Brian, you got it. Sid doesn't have any money. He said, but you got it. And he said, I need a 50% deposit to lock it in. He said, I'll put a hold on the date. But if John Lennon comes to me or Ringo comes to me, he said, where's the deposit? We're friends, but I got to show him this 50000 there, Sid. They're hot. I can't tie their dates up. And Sid said, okay, Sid, can I advertise it? And Brian said, not until there's a deposit. He said, can I tell my friends? And he said, Brian started laughing. Sid, I can't control what you say to your pals. He said, you could tell your friends. That was the only opening Sid had. So now he's got a hold on the Beatles for 100000 He's got a hold on Shea for twenty five grand. He doesn't have any money. And he said, I didn't know what to do. He said, I felt I'm gambling big time. So I went to the local post office box in the uh, uh, in the village area, the Chelsea area, where he's living at the time. And he said, I got a post office box 21, P.O. box 21, because I figure I'm playing blackjack. I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> and he said, then I'm pushing my son, who was a year old at the time, in Washington Square Park. And all the teenagers knew me from the Beatles and the Stones and Dave Clark Five. They come running over. Mr. Bernstein, who's next? And he said, I tell him I'm bringing the Beatles into Shea Stadium in August. They're ready to jump out of their sneakers. How do we get tickets? How do we get tickets? He said, send whatever it was, $5, $7, P.O. Box 21 to Sid Bernstein, the village. He said, "L, I did it for about a month. And then I went to the post office box, and I opened up the box. I figure if I sold 50 tickets at $5, I get $250. I give a few dollars to the landlord. I'll buy a pizza with sure. my wife. I'll calm her down. And he said, I open up the box, and there's nothing there. And he said, that can't be. This is 1965. The Beatles own the record world. He said, how can I? Impossible. He said, I go to the teller, and I said, there's something wrong. I should have mail. And he said, well, you know, what's your name? And he said, it's Bernstein. He said, you're Bernstein? He said, yelling to the guys in the back, hey, Charlie, stop bringing it out. 
three duffel bags filled with money, filled with envelopes. Sid said, L, I was going to do an Irish jig in the middle of the post office. I was so excited. I said, wait, I got to get my car. He said, I bring him home. He said, my wife is yelling at me. Sid, what are you bringing into my living room? He said, money. He said, so I bring it in. He said, L, we got nurses from the hospital across the street to help sort this out. There was over $300,000 in those three duffel bags. We sold out the stadium just with telling kids at the park, no ads, wow. no flyers, no that cell phones. Is extraordinary. Yes. I had no idea that aspect of the he story. He said by the time it was done, we could have sold out five shows at Shea Stadium. How integral, uh, and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Elliot Gordon, entrepreneur, former uh, mayoral aide and uh, a producer and talent agent. His mentor was Sid Bernstein, the man that brought the Beatles to America and uh, conceptualized that uh, incredible concert at Shea Stadium, which had its anniversary this week. And um, how how integral was the uh, the promotional work of the DJ Cousin Brucey, who I'm proud to call a friend and a colleague these days, in uh, building up that Shea Stadium concert? I know he was there, and he takes a great deal of pride right. in his role. Right. How important was that? Well, the stadium, uh, as far as selling out, it just sold out by itself. So even Sid as a promoter, there was nothing to promote. They were so hot, you it's could tell incredible. kids and sell 60,000 tickets. Uh, but what Bruce did, uh, Sid, <laughs> Sid told me, he said, oh, I got a call from uh, Rick Sklar, who was the program director uh, at the, the station at the time. And he said, hey, you're housing them in the Warwick Hotel, which is right across the street from where the station used to be. WABC used to be across the street. He said, can you get Bruce into the hotel room with the Beatles to do a live interview? And Sid said, well, I can call Brian. I'm not the boss. It's up to Brian Epstein. He said, I called Brian. Brian says, have those guys, the technicians, in the lobby. He said, not not across the street, because if I get a clearance from the Beatles, I want them to hit the elevator and be up here in one minute, because the Beatles could change their mind and leave and <laughs> right, go to sure. a bar. He said, I don't work for them. I, I work for them. They don't work for me. So Sid said, okay. So they had him down there. Brian gave him the signal. Bruce went up, and uh, I know they put him on the network. Bruce told me, said, L, they bumped all programming because I was in the hotel room live with the Beatles the night before Shea Stadium. That is absolutely incredible. Elliot Gordon is here. If you have uh, questions or uh, anything you want to go over with Elliot, we'll take some of your calls at 800-848-9222. That's uh, 800-848-9222. We've been having a lot of uh, a lot of Tony Bennett conversation lately on the program since his passing. We'll talk with uh, Elliot about that. Also, uh, a couple of other interesting aspects of uh, memory lane that are worth strolling down. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Marano here with Elliot Gordon. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano.
is the Beatles. Uh, we are uh, talking with Elliot Gordon uh, a little bit about uh, a little bit about everything, including the incredible Beatles concert at uh, Shea Stadium on August 15th of 1966. 65. 65, excuse me. And um, what you mentioned to me during the break, Elliot, is that um, two of the people that were at that Shea Stadium concert actually married Beatles? Amazing. That was That's a life that kind of like had different layers to it. It was a magical life. Two of the girls who bought tickets that night to see their favorite band uh, married two Beatles. One was Linda Eastman, who married Paul McCartney, and the other, Barbara Bach, who was still married to Ringo. Uh, Meryl Streep was there, and she always says it's one of the great moments of her childhood. Whoopi Goldberg was there. Sid had a 15-year-old young kid who was working as an apprentice for the New York mayor's office in the city-owned Shea Stadium, and he was schlepping chairs and carrying things around. He said, Ellie, he was a real sharp kid. He was great. I said, whatever happened to him? Uh, he said he's Steven Spielberg's partner. It was Jeff Katzenberg who was out there. And, uh, it just, it just doesn't stop. And, uh, Sid said, L, but you know, when, when you put your mind to it, um, uh, quitting is the easy way out. But if you hang in there and come up with an idea, and Sid had signed a band called The Rascals mm. at that time. And he put their name up on the scoreboard, flashing. The Rascals are coming. Nobody knew the Rascals, he said, but he just kept flashing. And it was picked up by the TV cameras uh, because there was over 300 press personnel there that night because it was the Beatles' opening night, and it was the first stadium concert. And he said, oh, the next day I got calls from record companies all over the country, all over the world, say, we want to sign the Rascals. He said, you never heard their music. He said, Mr. Bernstein, you were right about the Beatles. He said he made a deal with Atlantic Records, and the Rascals are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That is wild. I want to pick your brain on a few different things. Uh, I mentioned... At the start of the hour that, uh, that you had been an aide to Mayor Giuliani. One of the things I like about you is that, uh, you know, our, our talks and your presentations are, are largely non-political. You could be a communist or a member of the John Birch Society and still enjoy it just as much. But having worked in the Giuliani administration, I have to ask your thoughts on the, uh, Giuliani indictment this week out of Georgia. A lot of people are saying that this is just the mayor being railroaded. A lot of other folks are saying this is a culmination of what we've seen with the mayor of his sort of fall from grace as somebody that worked with him as somebody that knew him do you have any kind of reaction to this indictment out of georgia yes as far as fall from grace i'm proud of uh more proud of him now than i've ever been i mean this is a guy who has stood firm he hasn't changed his position at all uh he is a fighter uh he'll get through this he'll be successful and I don't think he's uh, changed at all. He's the same man I knew in City Hall, that when he believes in something, uh, he stands firm. And when he's your friend and he's got your back, you could count on him. You could sleep on that. And he's going to get through this thing very, very successfully. Well, let's hope so. I've gotten to know him uh, a little bit over the years, not nearly as well as you. And uh, I uh, find him just a, still a very, very impressive guy. One of the things that I think is so interesting about your presentations, these live shows you do where you show clips from yesteryear of a lot of great talents, is some of the things that I've noticed on the radio, and we have listeners of all ages, is that people that weren't necessarily around in the eras that you're highlighting and may not necessarily be familiar with the performers that you're showing on video, they are developing a new generation of fans with people that weren't even alive when they were doing their thing. Absolutely, Frank. Frank, there's a, a very high-end uh, 
uh, a community called uh, the Watermark, and they have a theater, and they bring me back twice a month. And I was there uh, two days ago, and the folks just love it. And one of the people in there happened to work uh, for the uh, um, the theater, and she's 35 years old, and she stayed the whole hour. And she said, I love these guys. I said, uh, well, you know, you never heard of the Mills Brothers before this clip I showed you. And uh, uh, you didn't know really who Dean Martin was, Frank Sinatra, maybe. She said, uh, but I know I liked what I saw. I was singing along with it. And what I'm finding, uh, one of the things they absolutely love is the style. These guys are dressed up. You know, I was at a... Uh, uh, a show not long ago, the guy came out in his T-shirt. I said, put on a tie. I said, well, there's a crowd of people here. And uh, they, they like the style. They like um, the Broadway clips I showed them. How could you not like Hello, Dolly? I mean, it just goes from generation to generation. A big part of Hello, Dolly was uh, obviously uh, Carol Channing, who is just so incredible as a talent, as a wit, as a performer. And uh, for people that haven't heard Carol Channing in a bit, here's, uh, here's what she may sound like. Hello, Julia, my lady. That's Carol Channing. No, Carol, you're never late. You're always timing. Oh, well, I fished for that. We were just talking about the old times, you know, reminiscing. Yes, yes. We've got plenty to reminisce about. Well, we do. I remember when you came to see me in a little review called Lendonier, and I was one of 20 unknowns, and you dragged everybody down there to see me. And then you decided that's our Lorelei Lee. And the minute I got Jim for a blonde's, I said, my God, that girl, that wonderful big girl. Well, you know it was the story of a little girl from Little Rock. It was five feet, two eyes of blue. It said so in the original book of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And here I was over six feet tall with muddy brown eyes. And you said, we don't want the cutest, prettiest, littlest girl in town. We want Carol's satire on her. We want Carol's comedy comment on her. Right, Carol. <laughs> right now. Yeah. Imagine the orchestra's tuning up. You know how they tune up? Yeah. And the overture's just finished, and I want you to walk down... Yes, Julie. ...center stage. Center stage. Like a star. They belong to you, baby.
And the great Carol Channing, uh, terrific. I mean, you listen to that, you're just transported to a, a different era. And uh, you actually represented Carol Channing. That is correct. Right? One time, and I'm very proud of that, about 15 years ago, uh, myself and a partner, we were booking entertainers uh, into what they call autograph shows, where you sign your autograph and they pay you for it. Or you take a picture with them and they pay you for it. And uh, I got Carol's number, I think possibly from the Friars Club, and I spoke with uh, with her, and I said, Carol, I said, there's a show uh, right by where you live in Los Angeles. May I and my partner represent you and book you into that show? Take pictures. You get paid. Sign autographs. You get paid. And she said, Elle, she said, I've done everything in show business. I've done TV. I've done Broadway. I've done movies, personal appearances. I've never done an autograph show, and I want to do one, only one, to run the gamut. And she says, yes, you may. And it really was an honor because I really wasn't off Carol. I mean, that song you just played was from uh, Gentlemen Prefer Blind. Mm. She was the original star in the late 50s of that show, later a movie by Marilyn Monroe. And she is the original Dolly in Hello, Dolly. Uh, in the theatrical version. In the theatrical. And, of course, Barbra Streisand did the film. Uh, so I, I book her in there. And in four hours... Uh, she uh, generates $10,000, Wow! pictures, autographs. And uh, she tells me, she says, El, I'll send you guys your commission. She said, but I'm not going to keep the rest of the money. I said, well, give it to me. She said, no. <laughs> <laughs> she, she says, no, no. She said, I'm going to donate it to a local charity. And I said, Carol, I said, I want to fly to Los Angeles just to hug you. I said, you are what show business should be. You are Jerry Lewis. You are Frank Sinatra. You understand that once in a while you got to give a little bit back. And I said, I love that about you, what you represent. It was my privilege and honor to for you to allow me and my partner to represent you once. And uh, special lady, special person. Well, if you could generate uh, $10,000 in four hours with an autograph show, yeah. why would it only be a, a, a one-time representation? Why wouldn't you have represented her repeatedly? Well, she was elderly at the time. She wasn't doing a lot. And uh, as far as those things, which is where her availability was, I think she was signed for... Uh, Broadway and signed for films. Um, that's the only one she wanted to do. I don't know if she actually enjoyed it, but uh, she enjoyed raising money for the less fortunate. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Joe is in Queens. Joe, you're on with uh, Elliot Gordon. Yeah, hi, Elliot. Uh, my question is, if if you look at the fifties, uh, there's nothing you can really cite. I think that's any thing like the Stones or the Beatles, which were the early 60s, but uh, so musically it seems like a complete transition as opposed to the movies, where it does seem like there's uh, a lot of similarity from the movies 50s to 60s, so uh, why is that the case, or it seems to be the case, I mean, you know, looking back. Well, the Beatles always said that they got uh, their inspiration from American rock and roll, uh, Elvis and uh, Little Richard, and uh, I, gee, I don't know. I guess maybe they were just a little bit different, uh, and uh, Sid just happened to catch them at the right time. So uh, I don't know the answer to that. 
Thanks, Joe. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Let me ask you about another uh, actor that you uh, don't hear a great deal about, someone that was uh, probably best known for uh, comedic roles, but uh, also, um, you know, no stranger to dramatic roles either, and that's Red Buttons. If people haven't heard the name Red Buttons in a while, here's Red Buttons at uh, Sid Caesar's 80th birthday. The breaking news that Sid Caesar... He's getting a dinner because the fryers are too cheap to get him what he really needs. A new cane. He's been falling on his ass lately. I said, friend, count me in. I'll be there. You know me. You know me. You call me. I am there. It doesn't matter where. I am there. In Transylvania. At a midnight minion of Jewish Orthodox vampires. Who will not suck a neck unless they salt it first. Sid Caesar's 80th uh, 80th birthday. Uh, someone like Red Buttons. What was it that you think made him such a uh, such a charismatic and such a special entertainer? Well, he worked so long and so hard, and uh, wonderful guy. And uh, I called Red one time. We become friendly, and I said, Red, I said, you know, I'm representing Catskills on Broadway. Freddie Roman, Malzi Lawrence. And I spoke to those guys. They really don't want to write new material. I said, you know, you've done this show so many times. You, you need new, mer- new material, new merchandise. I said, Red, but if I could bring you in, you got all those new jokes, those great jokes. Uh, and he said, Al, I'm going to teach you something. He said, I really don't want to do that stuff anymore. He was getting up in years. He said, but 
Uh, comedians never tell you no. They give you a price that's so high, so you'll spread it around what they've turned down. He said, so I'm going to tell you, i got to get $25,000, which you're not going to give me. But I want people to know that Red, Red Buttons is asking for twenty five grand. So uh, a wonderful guy and a guy who just kept at it for so long, a naturally funny guy. And she, and an Oscar winner, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I know he was in The Longest Day, but he won the Oscar for They Shoot Horses, don't they? No, or? I think it was Bridge Over the River Kwai. Oh, 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 that's right. That's right. Um, no, you're, you're correct. But a terrific actor, as I said, a great dramatic actor and a comedic actor as well. 800-848-9222. Robert's in Suffolk. Robert, you're on with uh, Elliot Gordon. Hi, Elliot. You are so fortunate to have been such an integral part of music history. I'm very happy to hear you. How did those girls scream so loud at the concert? Did they actually measure how loud they were? Well, you know, I'm going to comment on that, because in a way, yes, and thank you very much It's uh, for your compliment. I appreciate it. And again, it's not me. It was Sid Bernstein. He just shared all those beautiful stories with me. Uh, But there was a lady... Uh, who um, was one of the dancers. In other words, the Beatles only did 28 minutes. Now, Paul McCartney, I think, does three hours by himself. But the Beatles did 28 minutes. That's the way Brian Epstein ran it. And the idea was that, you know, he wants to get people, uh, uh, you know, the Beatles come in for a short shot and that's it. And what happened was they had to fill out this show. So they had a group called uh, King Curtis and the Cannibals and, Sid had a uh, karate demonstration on stage because he really wanted to show all those young kids in the crowd that don't think you can get past the security guards and run to the stage. You're going to wind up with a karate chop. So they stayed in their seats. So he had a karate uh, group demonstrate at Chase Stadium and also a group called the Disco, uh, I think the Disco Dancers. And one of the girls told me that the explosion of uh, girls screaming, because I would say it would be about 90% girls at that Shea Stadium concert, she felt it was a, a, a youth quake, and to witness it was really wild, the enthusiasm. And she said, El, being on stage that night, and she was only 18 years old, she always felt what she was witnessing was uh, 60,000 12-year-old girls cheering for themselves and what they were going to be doing in their lives. And the Beatles was kind of a common denominator that brought them together that night. And she said years later when she had cancer and she beat it, thank God, she thought back to the optimism of those screaming girls, August 15th, 1965, and it helped her beat her wow. problems later in life. Elliot Gordon is here. We'll talk Tony Bennett in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The loveliness of Paris seems somehow sadly gay The glory that was Rome of another day I've been terribly alone and forgotten This is the great Tony Bennett uh, singing on I believe the Ed Sullivan show Uh, I left my heart in San Francisco Tony Bennett obviously we lost recently one of the most incredible entertainers of all time somebody that had uh, peaks and valleys in his career but just kept at it and uh, kept um, re re 
appealing once once more to different eras of entertainment and changing with the the times in which he lived uh, Elliot Gordon entrepreneur uh, and a producer and a talent agent, agent extraordinaire you you knew Tony Bennett a bit right well i met him yes in a way uh it was about 15 years ago and a friend of mine named Sid Zion great newspaper reporter I uh, had a party, and I go there, and Tony's there, uh, and very approachable. He's there with a nice lady, and I walk over to him, and I said, Tony, I said, you know, my mentor, Sid Bernstein, I think he may have done some work with you. And he looks at me, and he smiles. He said, El, Sid presented me in Carnegie Hall the very first time I went there in 1962. He said, I love that man. So when I left the party, I called Sid. I said, Sid, I ran into Tony Bennett, and he said, you guys got quite a history together. And he said, Al, in 1962, when I was working at GAC, my first day at the job, I was assigned to Tony Bennett. And I go to my desk, and there's a note Tony called. And he said, I call him, and he said, Sid, I'm leaving GAC. You guys are terrible. You're an awful agency. You got me working in bars six nights a week. Uh, he said, you're not very good, and I'm leaving. And Sid said, well, I didn't want to uh, uh, I didn't want to um, uh, lose a client the first day at work. Uh, so I didn't know what to do. He said, I thought I'd lose my job. I said, Tony, I got a great idea. Hold on till the weekend. I'll come up to your home in Englewood Cliffs in New Jersey. We'll have lunch, and I'll lay this out on your great idea. Don't make a move. I said, Sid, you have an idea? He said, no, but I didn't want to lose the account. <laughs> he said, so I go up there, and by that, by Sunday, he said, I came up with an idea. I told him, Tony, uh, Judy Garland, when her career was in a rut, she went into Carnegie Hall, she did a great job, and she got out of the rut. He said, I don't have the money to rent Carnegie Hall, and I'm not allowed to promote shows because I'm an agent for the agency. I want you to come up with the money to put yourself in a Carnegie Hall. I'll do everything a promoter does. Hit a home run. That could get things going. And that's what they did. Well, that's what happened. Amazing. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? 646-675-1884. And I'll be going into Stand Up New York in the fall uh, with uh, History of the Comedians of the Catskills and uh, Safra Community Center Elliot on Gordon, November 6th. Thank you. We're going to have to end it there. Uh, keep asking questions.